his leadership. Father's Day is often a bittersweet celebration for many folks. Those who experience has been of a loving, caring, helpful, and all-around wonderful dad can certainly rejoice. If that father is near, we will celebrate with him. Often, however, we are separated by miles, or circumstances, or even death. But what about those whose father was ambivalent, or abusive, or absent? In this era, unfortunately, this is all too very common and very tragic. In his book, To Own a Dragon, Reflections on Growing Up Without a Father, Donald Miller says this, I wanted to be loved, and I wasn't. I wanted to be important to my father, but I wasn't. I wanted to be guided, and I wasn't. John McMurray, who co-wrote this book, tells Don, ultimately, we all belong to God. In scripture, he refers to himself as our father, and I think he really longs for us to know him as that. to fulfill the need. Such a cute video. And yet, the truth of the matter is, godly people get godly instruction from God, from their heavenly Father. So whether you are a father or you're a mother or you're a child, if you name the name of Christ, we need to analyze today where do does this instruction and example actually come from? Hopefully you've enjoyed um, the beginning of the series that Garrett and I began as we go through the Gospel of John, because truly this is Jesus' life on this earth. And today we're going to get into a summation, I believe, of God's plan of why he sent Jesus and just how much that can mean to us. In the Gospel of John, Jesus, while on the earth, shows us his continuing relationship with his Father. The venue has changed from heaven to earth. 
But this is God's purpose, that Jesus should come to earth, live in human form, sacrificially die for our sins, be raised from the dead, and ascend back to the Father in order for us to have this relationship with him. The Holy Spirit is sent to direct our lives and into this relationship in order to accomplish the Father's will for us as his children and as joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Today we will examine how God's plan made this possible. I know there's 10 points uh, or 10 sections that I'd like to draw your eyes to this morning and numerous scriptures. Uh, there's 113 scriptures which actually mention Father in the Gospel of John. Aren't you glad I'm not making us go through all of them? But I had the advantage of doing that and uh, just really an interesting study. Um, on Wednesday, our group has been beginning a study in the Gospel of Matthew. And what I've challenged our folks to do each week is to try and take ourselves out of 2010 as Americans and put ourselves into the time that Jesus was actually living. Try to make ourselves into Jews, if you will, uh, to understand what they understood, to have experience as what they experienced, to know the Old Testament. We have a great advantage over them because Jesus Christ has indeed come. He has shown many proofs that he is the Messiah and that he did go to the cross and accomplish God's plan. That he physically experienced death on our behalf to die for our sin and to bring us into the capability of a relationship with him. That God the Father's power raised him from the dead, which shows us eternal life is a reality. That upon the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was sent to indwell the believer. Now I've encapsulated all for you in that uh, little summation what we're going to look at point by point in these scriptures. First of all, in ten ways Jesus shows us that God is our Father. He reveals that his Father loves us. Now I'm sure that all of us in this room could recite John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Right? And that is true. But you notice in that verse it doesn't say the Father loves us that he sent the Son. When we look at this, we have to look at God and as the Father and Jesus the Son working in coordination to reveal themselves to us. And as we get further along here, we'll see the involvement of the Holy Spirit. What I'd like to do is draw some comparisons here of what we understand here and now because we've studied God's Word or we've observed God's Word being lived out in the lives of others among us. But this is an advantage that we have over these people who did not know God as their Father. The Jews didn't know God as the Father. In John 8, 42, Jesus begins by saying, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not come on my own initiative, but he sent me. 
Once again, John 3, 16 and 17, God so loved the world that he gave. God sent Jesus Christ into the world. And if we recognize the fact that Jesus was the one who was sent, the beloved, then we are beloved in God as well. John 14, 21, Jesus addresses his disciples and says, he who has my commandments and keeps them is one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will disclose myself to him. In just the same chapter, verse 23, Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Interestingly there, that phrase, our abode, uh, comes from the same root word for tabernacle. Remember in Garrett's message last week, he addressed how for the Jews themselves, they went to originally when they were called out of Egypt and wandering in the wilderness, God gave them specific instructions of the meeting place, which was called the tabernacle. But literally, the presence of God was in the tabernacle. He dwelt there. He tabernacled with them. The tabernacle was not stationary, it moved. When God's will moved, he moved them. And this is how the Jews knew God. They knew the God of Sinai as a director, as one who revealed his will through prophets, as one who gave them the law. In John 16, 27, we read, For the Father himself loves you. This is where our Father comes in. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came forth from the Father. It's interesting that Jesus says the same thing a number of different ways throughout this gospel in particular. But the gospel of John is unique in the fact that it reveals that relationship that's between the Father and the Son. Secondly, Jesus is the only way to the Father, John 14, 6. I'm sure another very familiar passage with you. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but through me. Jesus is the only way to the Father. And yet, what was the experience of the Jews in the Old Testament? In, other, in any way, fashion, form, to come and to actually have anything to do with God, it had to be through the law, the obedience of the law. Yes, the Ten Commandments, but also what are called the sundry laws, or sometimes we refer to them, oh, and by the way, as you're going to observe this, do it this way. And then, of course, we know in, through our experience of studying the Gospels, the Pharisees had tacked on numerous more uh, encumbrance-type observations, uh, especially that just put people out in the way of trying to come to God. They were actually furthering the distance uh, from God. Thirdly, Jesus is given the chosen by the Father. In John 6, 44 and 45, we read, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. 
Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes from comes to me. Uh, I have to just say this to me was very interesting as I did this study. How many times in our life do we hear things and although we may believe them, but we really don't learn from them. We don't apply them. And this speaks, I think, of the relationship that God desires uh, for his chosen, that they act on what they profess that they believe. So Jesus here is given the chosen. All of us who respond to the fact that Jesus is our Savior need to make him Lord of our life. And the Father is the one who put Jesus in charge. What is the Jews' experience? Well, the Jews' experience is, well, you know, Jesus, Father Abraham did this. And, you know, we come from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our father, he worshiped over here and he did this. Can you imagine the examples that they were pointing to were elevating Abraham and Jacob even above the Lord Jesus Christ, even above the Messiah, because they didn't acknowledge who he was. What is their experience? Well, when they pointed to Abraham as their father, Jesus answered a number of times in ways that probably lit him up pretty good. First of all, he spoke in, in a truth when he said, before Abraham existed, I already was. Literally, he said, I am, which is a perpetual existence in eternity. The Jews already quite proudly believed that they were the chosen. They were the chosen people of God. And there was many proofs in the Old Testament which pointed to that. Blessings that were handed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and through his sons, but specifically the son Judah, through whom the Messiah would come. So quite proudly, they pointed to the fact that, well, we're God's favorites. We've been going through, if you've been listening to the prayer line, we've been uh, reading a chapter or so a day in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel's not a fun book. It's also, it might be a hard word, to, hard name to say and a hard name to spell, but boy, oh boy, there's a lot of judgment in this book, and it's not, a, it's not a fun read. But what it comes down to is God has given his people ample warning over and over of how to live before him. As much as he loves them, he has to uh, discipline them. So the Jews cannot stand on the fact that they are God's chosen people. The best thing that comes about from the Jews being the chosen people of God, and this is not a slam on them, I'm saying the best thing is the Messiah is the blessing that comes through the nation of Israel. So be careful if you speak against God's people because in that fashion, he has not removed that designate. And we are told that he will draw them back to himself. Um, in John 10, 29, we also read, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Once again, tying together the idea here that this is God's plan and he has given Jesus charge over all. Jesus shows us how to imitate the Father in John 5, 19. He answers and says, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself uh, unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. As I read this verse, I'm pretty sure that there are ideas popping up in your own mind, whether your dads or moms, or whether you've observed this through your nieces and nephews. If you've done something good, it's great that your children uh, would imitate that. But here or there, we might have slipped up, and we might have done something uh, that wasn't of the best. And we see children imitating or role-playing the same in what our action or what our behavior is. And of course, this is a real-life example uh, that everybody that he was talking to at the time would understand. Of course, the real difference is Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. And therefore, we know that he was observing all of this behavior and thought process from what the Father had taught him. The just the intimacy that the Father and the Son have and how that translates into a human life with Jesus. Uh, wasn't Jesus ever tempted? Yes, he was tempted. We looked at that a number of times. And it wasn't just in uh, the fourth chapter of Matthew. Over and over, certainly, Jesus was subject to temptation. And yet, he imitates the Father. He quotes from the Word of God. Jesus reveals and does the will of the Father, and this is, this is really key. In John 6, 40, we read, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. After all these years of the way that the Jews visioned God, now they are being introduced to the fact that the will of the Father, God the Father, is that everyone would come to a relationship believing in Jesus Christ the Son, which will give eternal life and will be realized in the resurrection, as he refers to it here, Jesus, on the last day. Because go back to Genesis chapter 3. What happens when the fall of man happens. What happens when sin comes into the world? Death also enters in. And as Paul writes so eloquently, and death by sin, by one man, sin entered the world, and therefore the consequence was death by sin. So how do we beat death? Eternal life has to come from God the Father's plan, and that comes from believing in Jesus Christ. The will of God is unknown to the Jews. They really didn't understand until the Messiah comes that God's will, God's plan, and his perfect uh, inception can be carried out. Jesus returned to the Father. This is a critical um, issue because this gives us the fact of two things happening which we're going to be looking at in a minute here. Number one, the resurrection of Christ in order for him to be able to return to the Father. And then, of the Father and Christ sending 
the Holy Spirit. And in John 14, too, Jesus says, In my Father's house there were many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If Jesus didn't go back, where would we live? How would we get there? You see, Jesus is fulfilling God's plan. John 20, 17, Jesus speaking to Mary after he's resurrected says, Stop claiming to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. So here's one of the few instances in the Gospel of John where God, our Father, is actually attributed by Jesus the Son. He says, I ascend to my Father and your Father. You see the critical time element? Jesus has now died and been resurrected. So therefore, we are now able to have that relationship with God the Father through the Son. This is critical to, to the plan. If, any, if Jesus disobeys, if that was possible, that he just didn't want to fulfill one piece of this plan, you see this house of cards would fall. But because he acknowledges that the will of God, the will of his Father, is paramount and above everything else, he does it. Jesus prayed that the Father send the Helper. Um, in John chapter 17, which we're not going to read through, but I encourage you to do that. John chapter 17 is just, to me, such an encouraging part of Scripture. But in John um, 14, 26, Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The importance here is the Holy Spirit, when he is sent at Pentecost, indwells all the believers, each and every believer. Not just that day, but all who come to a knowledge of God. God gives him their, his very presence, and he is called by his title, the Holy Spirit. But he is the helper. He is the comforter. He is the teacher. He's the one who helps us remember. Remember what we've learned, what we've studied. Remember the words of God. Once again, an advantage that we have because we have the word of God before us. And I dare say many of you have more than one copy of God's word. And yet the New Testament writings, of course, were far from being written when Jesus is speaking in these words. And yet the importance of the Holy Spirit revealing God's will to these writers who would record them for our benefit. So God's Spirit then is sent to live within those who believe. The Old Testament representation of the Holy Spirit was God sent the Spirit on whom He wanted, when He desired, and for, for particular purposes. Sometimes the Spirit was given and then called back after the Spirit accomplished the will uh, of God in the person that he sent him to. So once again, we see a difference of what the Jews have experienced and what Jesus is bringing them. Jesus reveals true worship of the Father. In John 4, 24, John, uh, Jesus is speaking, of course, to 
Samaritan woman. And as she has raised these issues about, well, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, you're a man, I'm a woman, I can't even believe you're, you're addressing me. Um, you worship God in Jerusalem where the temple is. Our fathers say it's okay to worship God here on these beautiful mountains of Samaria. And Jesus doesn't want to argue. He just cuts to the chase. He says, you know what? Basically, all of this at this point is meaningless because God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And truly, that is such a blessing for us to recognize that because the Spirit of God dwells within us, if we can stay awake, we can worship Him 24-7, right? Right, Jim? Right. The Spirit of God indwelling us enables us to worship Him whenever and wherever we are. And that's not to discount this privilege of corporate worship. To come together as we do on Sundays, or if you come together in your small groups. These are all for edification, uplifting of ourselves, but channeling the worship of our lives to Jesus Christ. And here, once again, it solidifies the idea that this was God's intent from the beginning. Yeah, the tabernacle was okay. Oh, the temple was beautiful. But God was not an external God. What could man give God that God cannot provide for himself and in a better way? So Jesus here reveals the true worship of the Father, which is by spirit, and it's internal. The Jews, for them, unfortunately, everything was external. Even the internal aspects were exemplified by something that they could do or participate in to sacrifice for sin. They couldn't absolve themselves from sin, but they had to take the lamb or the bull or whatever offering that they had to purchase or that it belonged to them. And they had to take it to the priest, the mediator uh, between God the Father and them. Everything was external. And Jesus takes it to its true meaning by saying, no, we have to worship God in spirit and truth. Jesus literally shows us how to honor God. And this, this is a really neat uh, explanation for this. In John 12, 26, Jesus says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It's actually... As I did this study, it's actually a play on words because truly we only reap honor in a fashion that is totally different than what God receives as glorification. We receive honor when we're obediently doing what God has called us to do. God accepts the sacrifice of our living. And therefore, that's the type of honor that he talks about here. But it is contingent on doing the Lord's will and being totally obedient to what he calls us to do. Well, this must have really, uh, although Jesus here is speaking uh, primarily to his disciples, this has got to infuriate uh, the Pharisees, the leadership, because they do not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And 
for them to hear the words, if anyone serves me, you're basically serving God, you're doing his will, you're, you're honoring God and you will be honored. They had their own system set up. They weren't interested in an alternative. For them, this worked. And unfortunately, they didn't see that it didn't really work because it didn't bring them close to God. It didn't bring them into a relationship with him. And lastly, we see that Jesus reveals the Father is glorified by faithful service. If you want to please the Lord, do what he says. John 15, 8 says, my, my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and in that prove to be my disciples. The proof of obedience is fruit-bearing and brings glory to God. Those of you who have gone through the video uh, series, Secrets of the Vine, it's just a great encapsulation of how God works as he is uh, the vine dresser. Jesus being the true vine of the branches that come from him, you and I, and how we need to be pruned for two reasons, to bear more fruit, and eventually bear much fruit or to be pruned because we're not bearing fruit. Uh, that's just a, a brief encapsulation of that. But Jesus uses this to show the proof that the Father is only glorified truthfully when we are fruit bearing. And what does that mean to us? God our Father has certain desires for each of us utilizing our talents, utilizing where he has called us to be fit and part of the body of Christ. And here again, it's a hard thing for us to come to that understanding. And the Jews, although they caught the idea of the example of the, the grapevine, said, well, that doesn't, that doesn't apply to us. We're, we're doing everything that uh, the Lord says to do. We're observing the sacrifices. As a matter of fact, even Jesus said you know, that they were bringing people to the belief in the system that they were in. So, in summation of what we learned through John, Jesus teaches us that God truly is our Father, but it only comes in a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son. As we come to our time of closing this morning, the video was really a neat video. And it shows us that children need an example, a good example. They need to be taught. There are those of us in, in this fellowship that just have a lot of Bible knowledge and can be used to help share with one another that knowledge. There are teachers. There are those in this fellowship that have become great encouragers and continually can do that for some of our newer folks that have come. We have venues of 